The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello, Charles Lutwidge Dodgson who lived from 1832 to 1898, was a man with many interests, puzzles, politics, and photography being among them. He was also a mathematician, a genuine expert in logic, a prolific letter writer, and an inventor, designing everything from a new system for determining parliamentary representation to a device that allowed one to take notes in the dark. He invented a game that eventually turned into what we now know as Scrabble and he invented a set of stories that eventually turned him into a household name, not as Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, but as his pen name, Lewis Carroll. His works reflect this taste for wordplay and mathematics, including The Hunting of the Snark and Jabberwocky, The Walrus and the Carpenter, and of course, the book in which those latter two poems appear, Through the Looking Glass which is the follow-up to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The Mad Hatter, the Cheshire Cat, Humpty Dumpty, the Queen of Hearts, the White Rabbit, and Alice herself, falling through the rabbit hole and or the looking glass and into a world of adventure. All are indelible features of the children's book landscape. And yet, there's another side of Lewis Carroll that's scarcely explored until now. He was a man of the church deeply religious. He was ordained as a deacon several years before writing the Alice books, and he often used the celebrity of those books to help him reach others with his message. There's something about this that doesn't quite fit for me. How does the mighty logician end up believing in faith? How does a supreme, fantabulist, and devoted enjoyer of irreverence when it comes to words and definitions and reality continue to regard the Bible as a sacred text. For that, we need to better understand Victorian England and the views of religion of the day. We need to understand Lewis Carroll in a deeper way, and we need the help of one of Lewis Carroll's most ardent fans and scholars, Charlie Lovett, author of the new book, Lewis Carroll, Formed by Faith. We'll have all that today on The History of Literature. go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. Lewis Carroll. Wow. We have covered many of the great children's book authors, haven't we? All those children's books that came out of Britain in the 19th and 20th centuries. We've had episodes on Beatrix Potter and Roald Dahl, Giants of the Field. But there are giants and then there are giants. And as fascinating as Beatrix Potter, sneaky scientist, and Roald Dahl, Secret Spy were, oh, and C.S. Lewis, too, let's not forget Mr. Narnia. As rich as all those lives were, today's subject, Lewis Carroll, looms above us like a, a head on Mount Rushmore. The Alice books were a runaway success from the start. The Queen herself was said to be a fan, and they've been successful ever since. 170 languages they've been translated into and never out of print in English, and musicals and plays and films and cartoons and postage stamps have marked the last century plus of our lives with Alice. 
But our focus today is not on those books so much as their creator. Our guest is an avid collector of Lewis Carroll items. We'll ask him about that. And he's an appreciator and biographer of Carroll himself. And in his latest book, he gives us a kind of religious biography of a man for whom religion was no laughing matter. Charlie Lovett, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, joining me now is Charlie Lovett a New York Times best-selling novelist and playwright whose plays for children have been seen in over 5,000 productions worldwide. He's here today to talk about his new book, Lewis Carroll, Formed by Faith. Charlie Lovett, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I wanted to start with your childhood in North Carolina and ask what your parents did and how important books were to your family. Sure. Well, the short answer is very important. My father was a, a professor of English literature at Wake Forest University here in Winston-Salem. He taught for 40 years, mm. but he was also a book collector. He collected English language editions of the novel Robinson Crusoe, which wow. you know was a book that's been in print constantly since 1719. So it's yeah. almost a history of printing in a way. Right. Uh, so I grew up in a house where the content, the text of books was valued, but also books as physical objects were valued. We, we kind of had both in, in my household. Yeah. And I think that was you know, a big part of what got me interested in books and books collecting and writers and that, that whole world. Yeah. So when did you start to collect books yourself? So I think when I started, you know, traveling independently of my own family, I first started to sort of keep an eye out for books for my dad. I mean, in those days, mm. there, were, there were secondhand bookshops all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And about the time I was in college, I thought it might be fun to collect books myself. I really had fond memories of certain children's books. And so I started to sort of pick up a children's book here and there. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know, my dad just collects one title. Maybe I should focus on one title. So I decided to focus on Alice in Wonderland. And of course, that gradually grew. That focus grew to encompass not just all things Lewis Carroll or, or Charles Dodgson, as his real name was, but a lot of things that are sort of of the world that he was in. I try to use my collection as a way to put his life and his works into a broader context. Right. So Lewis Carroll, was that your favorite childhood book or did you have a sort of affinity for the author or was it a, 
a particularly rich vein of potential books to collect or why did you choose him so i mean i had no idea that there were thousands of foreign translations and oh, hundreds yeah. of different <laughs> illustrators and when i started i thought maybe i could collect 50 books you know? yeah. <laughs> but in my childhood ironically i never read alice in wonderland i oh. listened to alice in wonderland oh, we had uh-huh. these LP records up in our attic that on rainy days, I would sit and listen to the British actor Cyril Richard reading Alice in Wonderland. And so I I did have fond memories of it, but not as a book, as a piece of oral storytelling, which of course is how Alice in Wonderland started. So there's a certain appropriateness to that, I guess. Yeah. But at the time that I thought, let's try Alice, I knew nothing about Lewis Carroll. I mean, he could have turned out to be an incredibly boring person, but it turns out he was absolutely fascinating. He was so multifaceted, good at so many different things, involved in so many different aspects of Victorian life. So it almost quite literally led me down a rabbit hole into this whole Victorian world of arts and letters and theater and, and religion and, and so many other things. Yeah. So it's, so it's kept me interested for 40 plus years now. Yeah. It's, and it's such a timeless book and it's so renewable. You can almost track people's response to literature by their response to Alice in Wonderland over the years. Yeah, I think that's true. He almost intentionally set out to write a book that, in the words of Jerry Seinfeld, wasn't about anything. Mm, mm-hmm. Like most children's books of its time, it was not supposed to have morals. It wasn't supposed to teach a lesson. It was just supposed to be sort of fun and nonsense. And as a result, ensuing generations have been sort of able to hang whatever meaning or importance they wanted to on it. It's been embraced by the drug culture. It's been in embraced as an example of Alice as an example of a radical feminist. It's been embraced, you know, in so many different ways. And I think that the sort of openness of the original text has allowed that is I think it's also one of the things that's attracted translators and illustrators of people have enjoyed reinterpreting it in every possible art form. Yeah. And there's something about children's books in particular, where children are given so many books and they have so many books read to them and they kind of start to understand what books are. And then to have a book that upends everything, and I'm thinking of The Phantom Tollbooth kind of did this for my kids, where it was like, oh, here's a book that takes everything we know about books, and then it's turning it all on its head, and it's playing with language, and it feels subversive to uh, a nine-year-old or a ten-year-old in a way that maybe a a 40-year-old might be a little bit jaded to. Yeah, absolutely. When you read the books that Lewis Carroll grew up with, which I did while I was working on Form by Fate, those books are very much about children who are in an an adult universe, children are seen as Mm. inherent sinful. It's the job of the adults to cram their heads full of morality and knowledge and religion. When you look at Alice in that context, and here's a book where the child takes on the power, the child speaks truth to power, calls adults out on their insanity. It's almost hard to believe that somebody in 1865 would hand that book to a child. It is absolutely subversive. Yeah, And it sort of begins a process that that Dodgson himself was a part of, of kind of redefining what childhood is Mm. and moving it away from the idea of a child as a miniature adult to childhood can be this time of innocence and joy and happiness and games and and fun and nonsense. Yeah, well, I don't want to leave the antiquarian world because I have a couple more questions about it, but just to jump ahead a little bit, it's pretty interesting that he was the guy who did it. Give You'd think that in his personal life, he was a an atheist, a renegade, a anti-institutionalist, and all of those things. He had a whole other side to him. So we will get into all of that. But I did want to ask you about being in the antiquarian book business in the 1980s. And you already described the hunt through bookshops. And I remember, well, it was kind of a standard thing. We'd We'd land in a new city and we'd go check out the used bookstores because they'd have things that we couldn't get otherwise. And has that been completely transformed by the Internet now? Yeah, it really has. You know, my first novel, The Bookman's Tale, was the the main character was an antiquarian bookseller. And I set the novel in 1995 because I really wanted it to be in that pre-Internet world of Mm -hmm. of bookshops and of relationships. I mean, you know, I used to know all the know personally all the people that I bought books from and and visit them when I was in their towns, not just at their shops, but at their homes and we'd go out to dinner. And, and, uh, you know, there was this, there was fraternity sort of, of, of of people involved in the trade. And that exists to a certain extent now, but certainly not to the extent that it did, uh, before. And there was something lovely about 
going into a shop or seeing a dealer at a, a little regional book fair in England and having them ask about your children and know what was going on in your life. Yeah. And also, it is certainly easier now if there's a specific book you're looking for, you can find out in about 30 seconds whether there's a copy of that book on the market right now, and if so, how much it costs. Yeah, right. That didn't used to be the case, obviously. But one of the things that's kind of removed is is serendipity, is going into a shop and you didn't find the book you were looking for, but you found some other book that you'd never heard of that yeah. you're excited about. Yeah. It almost seems like there's an Indiana Jones element to it. Of you know, It's got travel, it's got... I'm sure there were probably rumors of a book that you're searching for or that's been long lost, and, but might there might be a copy in this bookshop in Marrakesh that nobody has been to for a while or that kind of thing. There's many, many, many books that I can pull off the shelf and tell you a great story about how I acquired that book. Yeah. But most of those stories date from before about yeah. 2005. <laughs> right. After that, the stories are... I found it on the internet. It's not a really exciting story. <laughs> right. Okay, so tell us about the Lewis Carroll rare books and artifacts that you have. I understand you have a typewriter and some other goodies in your collection. Yeah, as I said, I, I kind of expanded beyond just Alice to, to the whole world of Lewis Carroll and the world that he lived in. So I'm a for instance, I'm a, a theater buff myself. I was a theater major in college and worked as a playwright. And so I have not only a huge collection of Alice theater memorabilia from Alice plays from the, from the first ones in the late 19th century, right, the way through the plays that are going on right now, um, but also things like playbills from productions that mm. Lewis Carroll himself went to see in London um, during his years of, of theater going. So, you know, those are some of the ways in which I've tried to expand the, the scope a little bit. The typewriter, I have, I have his 1888 typewriter. Uh, which I recently got fully restored. It was one of my little COVID projects. And, you know, he never, he didn't type books on that typewriter, but it was, it, he, he was fascinated by gadgets and especially by gadgets that had to do with writing or photography. Yeah. And so he would, you know, when he had child friends come to visit him, they'd type out poems on the typewriter and, and things of that sort. Uh, and he, he typed a little bit of correspondence on it as well. And then, of course, there's the books. I mean, thousands of, of books, including translations into over 100 languages, illustrators running from the original John Tenniel through Salvador Dali and, and many, many more. And first and early editions of many of his his lesser known works, works on mathematics, on logic, pamphlets about Oxford University affairs and, you know, all sorts of different issues that he would write a five, 10, 15 page pamphlet and issue it privately and pass it around the university. And, you know, now there's three or four copies left in the world. Yeah. The fact that he was interested in so many different things makes it a fun area to collect in because you get to explore math and Euclid and, and geometry and logic and Oxford politics and religion and architecture and voting theory and on and on and on. Yeah. And every time you pick it up and hold it, you think, here's another thing that he would have held or that would have given me insight into what he was thinking about during this particular month of this particular year in his life. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have these on display in some way, or are they in your house? Well, they're in my house, but I always think the most fun thing about having a book collection is to be able to share it with others. Yeah. I, mean, I do have I do have a few items right now that are with Traveling Exhibit that's in, I think it just opened in Perth, Australia, about Alice in motion pictures. I curated an exhibit in New York a few years ago about Alice on stage. A lot of my items were in that exhibit. That was, to me, that was one of the hard things about the pandemic because I couldn't welcome people into my house and, mm. and have them play show and tell with the books. Yeah. Uh, so we're getting to do that again a little bit. My wife and I host a dinner after our local book festival. This is coming up in a couple of weeks. And we'll have 30 or 40 authors here at the house, and they love to play show and tell with books. It's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And Alice in Wonderland is such a great anchor for this, because even if people are specializing in other things, they probably remember it from their childhood or from one of the films or something and, and feel a kind of connection to it, even if they're not a Lewis Carroll scholar. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there was there was something for me really special about watching Jason Reynolds, you know, the Caldecott award winning children's author, holding my copy of the first edition of Alice in Wonderland. I was mm. just wow, that 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 was a great moment for me. <laughs> yeah, I've, I read that there's you have one of five privately owned copies of that. I think it's down to five. Yeah, I think number six was recently donated to an institution. So there are only there are only about 22 copies. It was a book that was 
recalled by the author originally. Lewis Carroll was very particular about the way his books looked. He did not want to send what he considered to be sort of second-rate quality printing out into the world, even if it cost him personally to Mm. make his books of high quality. And when the first edition was printed, for for a variety of reasons, he decided it was not of high quality. And so it never went on sale. And there were only about 50 copies or so that were, were ever even bound up. And so of those, there are about I think 22 or so that remain. Uh, But most of those, as you said, are in permanent library collections. So for a a real aficionado, would they see the differences? Are there illustrations that were taken out? Yeah, one of the issues that people have had is because it's such a rare book, it's hard to look at a lot of different copies of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are some copies where you don't really see that the printing is all that bad, but there are other copies where you can really notice it. And the thing that you notice the most is it's over-inked, which when you have an illustration on one side of the page, yeah. the text that's on the opposite side of that same piece of paper bleeds through into the illustration, and that kind of ruins the illustration. I so see. I think that that was really the main issue. And you're not going to see that in every single copy of the book, but you do certainly see that in mine on under some pages where it's very clearly you can see that bleed through, and you can understand why a perfectionist would not have wanted to send that out into the world. Right, I see. So it wasn't that he was correcting a bunch of typos or or changing the text. It was more that the actual printing had not come up to. Yeah, yeah. It was the it was the quality of the printing. He did tweak the text over the years as new editions came out. He even added a few lines of verse that he had written for the stage play in the eighteen eighties. And there's debate over what we should consider the definitive text of Alice in Wonderland. But the the final revisions that he made were towards the end of his life, an edition that came out around 1896, 1897. And even that, you can find typos in there. So I think a lot of people consider, like, you take that edition, you go and you correct the obvious typographical errors, and that is what we consider the sort of the definitive text. Right. Okay. Let's take a quick break and then come back and we'll talk about Lewis Carroll's life and the new biography of Lewis Carroll written by our guest, Charlie Lovett. Okay, we're back. So, Charlie Lovett, you have extensive experience in the world of Lewis Carroll. We've really just scratched the surface. You were the president of the Lewis Carroll Society of North America and the editor of the Lewis Carroll Review, and you have all of this background. You've written or edited nine books about Lewis Carroll, so I'd say you know this world inside (laughs) and out. (laughs) So you're a good person to ask this question. What was the focus of the previous biographies of Lewis Carroll? What kind of figure emerged from those pages? Well, there have been a lot of them, but I think, generally speaking, not surprisingly, the thing that people have been the most interested in is his creation of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, his work as a as a writer for children, and as an extension of that, his, his relationships with children that that writing grew out of. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of what he's most famous for, and so that's been what people had the most interest in. That's what's been the most commercial in terms of selling biographies. And there's certainly been lots of other aspects of his life. I mean, Morton Cohen's 1998 biography goes into virtually every aspect of his life in some form or other. There's been fascination with his photography, with his mm. with Carroll as an artist, with Lewis Carroll as a teacher, as a mathematician, as a logician, and all these different areas. And there's usually been some mention in most of the biographies that he was a deacon in the Church of England, or that he was considered to be a fairly religious man. And there's some biographies that go so far as devoting an entire chapter to Lewis Carroll's religious life and his faith. But there was none that really had delved into it in depth. Mm-hmm. And and really looked at his his formation, the influence of other figures on his religious life, and how, when you start to look at it really closely, you see that these things that we think of as different aspects of Lewis Carroll are actually tied together by this one underlying foundation. Mm. Okay, good. Well, I want to ask you about that, because when I was going through your book, it was very persuasive that this was going to give us a kind of exciting angle on a lens through which to look at Lewis Carroll. But I did want to ask you about the biographies that I remember coming out in the 1990s. I think there were two or three that came out very close in time. And at the time... The speculation was about Carol's or Dodgson's sexuality in connection with children. And I was wondering if scholars have taken that apart or confirmed anything or what, where does that controversy currently stand? 
Well, I think that controversy stands basically depends on whether or not you've read all the source material. I mean, mm. one of the things that I was really determined to do in this biography was not to take one or two lines of text or diary or letters out mm -hmm. of context and try to prove something with them. What I wanted to do is look at the entire corpus of evidence that's all of Lewis Carroll's diaries, all of his letters, all the reminiscences of people who knew him. Those are sort of the primary sources. And then a lot of secondary sources that helped me understand the world that he lived in. Look at all of that and then try to draw conclusions from that rather than come up with an idea and try to prove it with a limited amount of of evidence. And I think if you look at all of that, I don't understand how you can come to any other conclusion than than the one that I came to, which is that not only was being in the presence of a child for Lewis Carroll not a sexual experience, if anything, it was a religious experience. Mm. Uh, I mean, he has a vision, you know, the, the vision of the child that he grew up with was the child is inherently sinful and must use the adult in order to grow closer to God. But what he came to believe was very much what Wordsworth and Ruskin believed, which is the child is inherently innocent and the adult can grow closer to God by being in the presence of the child. So to Lewis Carroll, there was, I mean, not only is there absolutely zero evidence for that and that most, most of that assumption comes from trying to judge a 19th century man by 21st or 20th century standards. And I think it also sort of ignores the whole Victorian cult of the child. But in fact, there's a lot of evidence when you look at the entire corpus of evidence that, that suggests that what was really going on was religious at its base. And the innocence of the child to him made him feel closer to God. And he says that again and again in many different places, and other people say that about him. Mm. Okay, so let's turn to that religion and give some context You've talked a little bit about the religion in the Victorian era and the sinfulness of children, but what else should we know about the way both religion and faith and, and theological issues and the church as an institution, how did, what should we know about Carol's world in order to kind of set the groundwork for where he was in terms of that religion? Sure. I mean, there's a lot to know, and I tried very hard in writing this book to make it a book that would be accessible to any reader. You don't have to have already been a religion scholar or a historian to, to enter into these pages. But I think the first thing is that the the church in England, and, and keep in mind it is, there are dissenters at this point, but essentially we're talking about the Anglican church, which is the church that is run by the government. I mean, it is a state church, mm -hmm. um, was, was very central to public life. We're talking about a time period where Population is growing rapidly, so churches are being built rapidly. We're no longer in the Middle Ages when church attendance is compulsory, but still the vast majority of people are not only going to church, they're going to the same church. And things that are happening in that church are headlines in the newspapers and debates that now we would see play out in obscure theological journals play out on the pages of the morning paper in all the major cities and countries. So I think that's one of the first things to understand. And then also you're talking about a time period where there really was at sometimes almost a split in the English church between on the one end of the spectrum, the, the evangelicals, and on the other end of the spectrum, those who subscribed to the Oxford movement, which started in the 1830s and was a movement towards a more high church view of what worship and theology should be. And Lewis Carroll's father was definitely on the high church end of that spectrum. And when we look at Lewis Carroll's life and religion, we see a gradual moving across that spectrum to a more broad church view of things than when he was a young man. But to understand how those different movements, the evangelical movement, the high church movement, the broad church movement, how all those related to each other, that's something I try to explain in pages of the book. And then also just the dailiness of religion, especially for somebody living in an Oxford college, as Lewis Carroll did. I mean, he would have gone to morning chapel every day during term time. Hmm. Uh, he would have gone to church usually at least twice and sometimes three times on a Sunday. He would go to the morning service at Christ Church, then he'd go to the university sermon at the at the university church, and often he'd go to an evening service as well. When he was home with his family, they would read prayers every morning, every evening, essentially having a, a short prayer service that was very similar to morning and evening prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. So I think all those things are important to understand. And then also just having a good handle on the Book of Common Prayer, which is the Anglican Book of Worship, and on the Scripture. I mean, when you read, for instance, the prayers in Dodgson's diaries and lots of other things, he's constantly quoting from or alluding to those two books. You need to be familiar with those two books to understand the, those quotes and those allusions. So it's a lot of things that you have to have as a background. And as I say, I try to write this book so that somebody who has 
knows nothing about the Victorian church and has never picked up a copy of the Book of Common Prayer will still be able to understand what's going on and how how these things are playing out in Lewis Carroll's world. Yeah. So in some ways, the the picture you've drawn for me so far is that religion might have been as present for someone as politics or news would be for me today, where it would just be kind of the the way I start my morning and the way I keep up and, and something I'll discuss and debate and, and talk about with my family and so on. But I tend to think of religion as being something that can be more deeply important to someone and and maybe to that they're asking existential questions or turning to it for deep feelings of solace or doubt or faith. Do you get the sense that Carol was kind of a, that this was just part of being a good public citizen or were you sensing that this was a, a battle for his soul within himself? Yeah, the idea of the battle for the soul is certainly also key to understanding Victorian religion, that these were not just things we had we chit-chatted about over morning coffee. This, these were issues that could affect you for eternity. Mm. It is definitely something he, that he thought about very deeply. Mm-hmm. While, yes, it was part of his daily habit and whatnot, he was one who, whenever there was a decision in his life that involved any sort of religious issues, he thought long and hard about those things, and he considered lots of different things. And one of the things I found fascinating about him is he his work work as a logician enters into his religion. When you read some of his writings on religion, they're very much sort of a combination of faith, deep understanding and study of scripture and of, and of other works and of logic. Mm. Example of that is, is his attitude towards eternal punishment. So I think, I think if, if you could sum up Dodgson's view of religion in just a few words, it would be that God is an all-loving God. I mean, to him, the love of God was absolutely central to his faith and to his religion. And he could not, as a logician, reconcile the idea that an all-loving God would infinitely punish someone for necessarily finite sin. I mean, in, in the span of a lifetime, you can only commit, you can commit a lot of sin, but it's going to still be finite. And and so he did not, you know, that was one of the places where he sort of parted ways with the official dogma of the English church, is he did not believe in eternal punishment. And he wrote very eloquently about that. But it came from this thinking very hard about who is God, what is the essential uh, aspect of God, and then also coming at that from from the point of view of a logician. So, so many so many aspects of his life that don't, on the surface, seem to be religious, like teaching logic, he actually applies to his faith life. So I think, yeah, he, he thought very, very deeply about religion. He used it to comfort others in times of sorrow and loss and to comfort himself in times of sorrow and loss. When he was on his deathbed, he wanted his sisters to sing a hymn to him where the refrain is, thy will be done. And he very much wanted to, not just on his deathbed, but to the the extent that he was able to, to put his life in God's hands and try to do what he thought God had in store for him. He would be the first to admit that he didn't always succeed in that, nor do any of us, but but it was something that he certainly strived for. I think a lot of logicians or logic-minded people get kind of hung up on some of the inconsistencies or the irreconcilabilities. Did he say that there are going to be things that are unknown and unknowable, or how did he treat the problem of evil existing in the world with an all-loving God? Yeah, I mean, I think he certainly saw that there were things that were would be unknown and unknowable and that not all questions are for us to answer. Mm-hmm. He didn't write a lot of books about religion. He had a plan to write a book about what he called religious difficulties, and it would be wonderful if he had actually written that oh, book. Oh, yeah. Then we would, know, <laughs> we would know answers to that question and, and to many more. And so we have to sort of read between the lines in some cases. And But he did write a lot of He wrote a lot of letters to friends and even to people he didn't know. He had a very interesting conversation with an agnostic. When I say conversation, you know, a a trading of letters Mm -hmm. uh, in which he tried to explain Christianity and its necessity to this agnostic. And that we get some very interesting things out of that. And he he wrote some letters to his sisters about eternal punishment and some other things and to some some very close friends, giving them sort of guidance. And so there there are places we can turn. Mm. But it would have been nice if he had written that book about religious difficulties, because then I could probably give you a good answer to that question. Yeah. What he actually said was he was working on his book on symbolic logic. And he said to his sister, you know, I've set the book on religious difficulties aside for right now, because there are many, many people who could write that book. Hmm. But I feel like right now I'm the only person who could write this book on symbolic logic. So I'm going to focus on that. 
And he was very worried that he would not finish the work that he had laid out for himself before he died. And he didn't finish it. Symbolic Logic was to have been a three-volume work, and he only ever finished the first volume. So unfortunately for us, as we're studying his religious life, we only have really one chapter of that book, which was the, the chapter on eternal punishment. But we can read the letters, and we can read other people's accounts of him, and we can read the things he was concerned about it and get some sense of how he would answer some of those questions. So we have letters, we have diaries, we have some sermons. Was he most open in his letters? Or I'm guessing the sermons might have been a little more by the book, or was he exploring in the sermons as well? He preached a lot of sermons. We have one outline of a sermon that was in his diary. And then in the process of working on this book, I actually discovered the text of another sermon, which was previously unknown, Hmm. and is is published in this book for the first time. Wow. that's all we have in terms of sermons. We don't we don't have a large collection of sermons that he preached. We have lots and lots of sermons that he listened to, which are also very revealing. Hmm. But I, I think we see in the letters probably more than anywhere else him most deeply thinking about religion. In his own diaries, he he was he recorded more of what he did than he did of what he thought. In early years, he recorded some of his thoughts. But it was mostly his his day-to-day life. His diaries were not deep delves into thoughts about religion. But some of his letters were, and in particularly his letters to his siblings. And he, he seemed to feel especially close to grown women who he had known as children. And he developed this bond, which, as I said, he felt of as a sort of religious relationship with them. And then when they got older, had children of their own had loss, had questions, had doubt. He That was a group of people that he, I think, particularly felt drawn to try to counsel and to, to, to talk to about religious matters. And he preferred to have those conversations in writing. He always said he didn't like to get into religious debate or really other kinds of debate in a face-to-face meeting. He wanted to be able to write things down so it was totally clear what each person was saying. And that we benefit from that because some of those letters do survive. So I think, it, yeah, it probably is in his letters. And then also in some of his published writings or almost published writings, like his essay on eternal punishment, which only ever made it to the galley proof stage. But he did write some letters to the press and some other pieces that give us a sense of the things that he was he was particularly concerned about. I mean, the issue of reverence, for instance, is one that comes up again and again for him. Mm. Uh, but definitely those letters to his sister and to a couple of his adult friends whom he had known as children show us some very deep thinking on these subjects. It's interesting you mentioned reverence because my next question was going to be about irreverence. Given what we know of Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland and everything, I'm just curious about his attitude toward religion. He seems like someone who would be perfectly positioned to kind of poke fun at, if not the religion itself, at the some of the practitioners of it or some of the positions that people took, maybe in good faith, but that were maybe a little bit ridiculous given the, the logical inconsistencies and so on. Did he have an attitude like that toward religion or religious figures? He, through his whole life, very much had the opposite attitude. Yeah. He was a constant defender of reverence. He he would write people letters taking them to task for for telling jokes that turned on some bible story or some aspect of religion. Uh, he would write to people who gave sermons and say it was a good sermon but that one part where you put a joke in, where you put a laugh line in, that was irreverent. And people are going to remember your joke and not remember the points that you made about religion. And he actually quantified who and what it is that should not be the subject of levity or humor. And in that category, he included not just the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer and the life of Christ and the saints, but he also included current day religious leaders, preachers. He's not saying that they're all good or that they're all correct. But he said that they shouldn't be criticized using humor. We shouldn't make jokes about them. Mm. Because even if you think that that particular priest said something that's wrong, we should have reverence for the priesthood itself mm-hmm. and for its position. And it's perfectly fine to criticize him and to say, as Lewis Carroll certainly does in places, he criticizes people who he takes issue with their theology and things that they've said in sermons. Or, but his this idea of reverence for holy things, and he also includes in that list of of things that we shouldn't make fun about. Evil spirits, the devil, hell, damnation, all those things. You know, it doesn't have to be things that are good. It's all, he said, again, these are things that should not be the subject of humor. They should not be taken lightly. And this is a probably the one aspect of his religious life 
that we see him talking about, and I don't want to quite say harping on, but sort of focusing on all the way from the time he was a young man to the very end of his life. One of his very last sermons was on the subject of, of reverence. And so it was certainly something that he saw all the way through. He wrote about it in connection with the theater. He was, you know, he was a great theater goer at a time when there were still some religious leaders, not all, but some who felt that the theater was not a place where religious people should go. And this comes from the time period when there was certainly a lot of theater that was sort of low and vulgar, especially earlier in the 19th century. But he writes very passionately about how theater can be reverent, and here's the ways in which it can be reverent, and here's in the ways in which it ought not to be irreverent. And he almost used that as a justification for his own theater going. So it's a topic that probably more than any other in his religious life encompasses his whole religious life and is there from beginning to end. Yeah. So would you say that his taste for literary nonsense, he basically felt comfortable applying it to life because life is impermanent and life is it's OK for life to be a little ridiculous. I'm talking about everyday life and and what you have for breakfast in the morning and yeah. so on. But that when it came to questions of religion, he would just basically say that's too serious. It, it's it's too important. It's too essential. It's too critical to what we how we fit into the universe. It's just not a worthy subject for the kind of wordplay and so on that I can feel free to apply to Alice in her Wonderland. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, he makes jokes about lots of things. And I think he especially makes jokes about sort of the pomposity of, of adults. Yeah, know? right. But he never specifically would make joke about the pomposity of, of a bishop, for instance. I mean, it's quite telling that in the cast of The Hunting of the Snark, you have all of these people who's who begin with a B, you have the barrister and the banker and the baker and the beaver. You don't have a bishop. Mm. Uh, he would he would not have he would not have put a bishop in there. Yeah. Uh, even though it certainly would occur to him as he's going in his head through occupations that begin with the letter B, he certainly would have landed on that in his head, but he would he would not have included that. So yeah, I mean, I think we all have in our lives things where we say, you know what, we don't make jokes about that. It's fine to joke about this and that and the other, but all of us have some things, and they may be different from person to person, where we go, that's not something we make a joke about. And for him, that category was things that had to do with religion, with the Bible, with religious leaders, and again, with things like hell and damnation. He was very upset when he went to see a, a children's production of HMS Pinafore, and the captain says, damn me. And then the little chorus of sisters and cousins and aunts sing, oh, he said, damn me. He said, damn me. And this was little children singing this. And he was, Lewis Carroll was really upset about this. The idea about these, what he saw as these innocent creatures making light of eternal punishment or eternal damnation really bothered him. And he, he wrote about that in, in the press. And so he, he definitely, like all of us, had things where we don't joke about those things. And for him, they were largely things to do with religion. Yeah, he seems to have believed he was a sinner, vile and worthless, I think was the quote. And I get from what we've talked about that he would view a kind of transition from the innocence of childhood to adulthood as that being not necessarily a, an uncommon way for an adult to be. But he also was headed for the priesthood and then he rejected it. Do we know why he did that or are there any leading theories as to why he rejected the priesthood? I write about this at great length in this book because it's a complicated issue. And I'm not sure I would use the word rejected mm. because that would imply some sort of dislike of the priesthood. But I think there are there are a lot of reasons. And he admits that there were, that it was, he says, you know, for a number of reasons. And we also have to go all the way back to look at his being ordained as a deacon. He, as a, a teacher at Christ Church, he was expected to be ordained into, into the ministry. And he not only did he never proceed to the priesthood, but he actually delayed his ordination to the diaconate mm -hmm. for many years. It was a very slow process for him. And there's probably 50 pages in the book about this, so I, I will have to sort of skim <laughs> over quickly. But, but a few of the reasons that I think are, are worth looking at is partly his father. His father, I think, very much expected him to go into parochial priesthood. It, it wasn't anything that I think Lewis Carroll was ever interested in, and he felt pressured by his father. His father was also a very important person in the church who held a lot of positions of high responsibility, published a lot of sermons and a lot of other works, and frequently was preaching to newly ordained clergy. So we have a lot of what he thinks clergymen should be expected to do. It's a very, very high standard. And I think he probably was somewhat intimidated by trying to, to keep up that standard. I mean, one of the things we see 
in his religious life is that things change a lot after the death of his father. Hmm. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons. I think the the conservative nature of Bishop Wilberforce, under whom he would have been ordained, and when, when you're ordained by a bishop as a deacon, and then again as a, as a priest, especially as a priest, you know, if that bishop says, if you're one of my priests, you aren't going to go to the theater, or you aren't going to do this or do that, you can't argue. You have to do whatever they say at, at that time. And while it has been stated that Bishop Wilberforce said you can't go to the theater if you're a priest, I haven't been able to find that anywhere in his writings. But there's no doubt that Wilberforce did say the priest cannot live an ordinary worldly life. He has to remove himself from some of the amusements and entertainments of daily life and these sorts of things. And I think that was part of it. Even though some people have described Dodgson as puritanical, I think he's maybe was less puritanical than he might have been if, if he had been ordained. And I think there are a lot of other issues as well that come into it. So it, it was a fascinating thing to study to look at the timeline of it, mm. to learn the intricate details of how he did become a deacon, because most of that had just never been written about. What the deacon's examination was like, what books he had to study to, to prepare for ordination, all of that was a really interesting window into his religious training. But yeah, in the end, he he did not become a priest. He said he for many years he viewed himself as essentially a layman, even though officially he was still a deacon. And then towards the end of his life, in the last 13 years or so of his life, he kind of went back to preaching, assisting with services, uh, things of this sort. And by that time, his father had, had been dead for many years, and uh, he had sort of moved to a more broad church view of things and, you know, sort of mellowed out a little bit. And so while he was never, he, he never became a priest, he did become a lot more active in clerical activities in the last decade or so of his life than he had been in those years between the death of his father and, and the late 1880s. Did he ever seem to express the the view or the hope that his works for which he was most famous, like the Alice books, were a way of serving God or a, a way of doing God's work? Or was it always completely separate for him? So I think there are two essential ways in which he saw, maybe not the works himself, but but especially the fame that he accrued from the Alice books as mm. as useful for serving God. And one of them was giving away copies of the books. He took great joy when, when he was asked about what's the best thing about being a famous children's author. He said, I don't care anything about being famous. I don't want people to come up to me and say, I loved your books. Your books were amazing. You're amazing. The thing I like the most is when I can give a copy to a children's hospital or an orphanage and a child who is sick, who is unhappy, who is in pain, can for an hour or two forget about that because of the words that I've written. That gave him the greatest joy of all. But the other thing is he also used those books, although the books themselves, he never intended to be religious or moral, but he used the books and his and the fame surrounding them as a way to send out religious messages to children. So for instance, he wrote a beautiful little four-page pamphlet called An Easter Greeting to Every Child Who Loves Alice. And it's a little sort of mini sermon for children about Easter Day. And that was inserted in a lot of copies of his children's books. And then later on, in later editions, starting in the 1880s, he actually just printed it. Instead of inserting a separate leaflet, he was printed in the, in the back of the, of the book. He wrote a poem about Christmas that was treated in a similar way. Because of his fame, he was often asked to speak to, to groups of children. And he, he often took that as an opportunity to give not what he would have called sermons, but what he certainly would have called religious addresses or addresses of a religious nature. And then, of course, there are his later books, Sylvia and Bruno and Sylvia and Bruno Concluded, which he very much intended to be children's books. They, I don't think you could argue that they were particularly successful as such, but it was his, his intention that those would be children's books that would mix what he called the grave and the gay. They would mix serious ideas about religion and about the deeper thoughts about life along with the nonsense that and the storytelling that we had come to to know from him. So definitely he used his position as a children's writer to be sort of um, an evangelist. I almost think of him as the, sort of the apostle of children. Mm. He definitely saw that as part of his purpose. Right. And if we're tracing that through, it's kind of like one might say that he was put on the planet to do a particular thing. Clearly, he had these great gifts in this area. And maybe by focusing on those gifts and leading people toward the books and then leading people toward the figure of Lewis Carroll, it would help to expose people to the religion that was so important to him. And I can think of no better way than to read your book, uh, where you can read all about <laughs> Lewis Carroll and uh, take your love for the Alice book and people's respect for Lewis Carroll as a children's book author 
and learn more about what was important to him and trace the history of his religious thought. Absolutely. Okay, well, the book is called Lewis Carroll, Formed by Faith. Charlie Lovett, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. Okay, there we go. Thank you for joining me today, and my thanks to Charlie Lovett. Do check out his book, Lewis Carroll, Formed by Faith. We're getting into that holiday season, my friends, and it's time to start making some lists of books for those loved ones in your life. Maybe you have somebody in mind who would be a good fit for Formed by Faith. Maybe that person is you. Hey, why not treat yourself once in a while? You deserve to have some nice things. Life is hard enough. Speaking of nice things, we have some nice episodes coming up for you. Kurt Vonnegut, the environmentalist, is around the corner. But before that, we have a fun one, Method Acting, and the play known as Bad Hamlet. And a story that we like to call, well, let's see if we can come up with an anagram for this famous tale in true Lewis Carolinian fashion. Hate Lethal Letter. That's a, an anagram for the story we're going to read. It's what the story is by Edgar Allan Poe. Spoiler alert. It's what Poe's villain might have thought. Hate Lethal Letter. After Dupin discovered the purloining of it. Or how about this? Another anagram for the story. Latte Theater Hell. <laughs> that might be what... What good old Edgar Allan Poe would think today as he drifts past Starbucks after Starbucks, wondering what happened to all his beloved saloons. Latte theater hell. Poe, who once got roaring drunk on a single glass of champagne, couldn't handle his alcohol very well, poor Edgar. And yes, we will have, if you haven't guessed the anagram, if you haven't sorted it out in your mind, as Lewis Carroll no doubt could have in an instant, in a trice, we will have one of Poe's most classic works next, next week. Give you one more anagram. Third clue. Alert lethal teeth. Or eye, as the case may be. That's your fourth clue. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>